This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. I'm Josh Dalton. I'm a partner at the Boston offices of Bingham McCutcheon. False marking is an old cause of action that's got new life uh, in light of a decision from the Federal Circuit in the end of 2009. Section 292 of the Patent Act has been around pretty much the same for the last 50 or 60 years. It provides in relevant part that whoever marks upon or affixes to or uses an advertising in connection with any unpatented article, the word patent or any word or number importing that the same is patented for the purpose of deceiving the public shall be fined at more than $500 for every such offense. So 292 says don't put patents on products that are covered by the patent. Don't put expired patents on articles and pretty much sits there for decades without much activity because the question was what is fined by not more than $500 for every such offense mean? There was a First Circuit case about 100 years old, the London case, that had basically construed similar language to mean per decision to mark. So if a company makes a decision once and then marks that way for three years, they were sued, they would be liable for $500. That all changed at the end of 2009, the very last business day of the year, the uh, Federal Circuit gave a pretty big present to a whole new class of non-practicing entities, if you will. The Forest Group decision held that the per $500 clearly meant per marked article. So that same company that made a decision once and then marked for three years, if they marked a million products during that time, instead of being liable for up to $500, is now liable for up to $500 million. So to give you just an example of how much this has exploded since that ruling, in the 10 years or so before the ruling, there had been a total of about 40 KETAM type false marking cases under 292. We're here in uh, late, uh, the late 2010 in November. There have been about over 500 uh, such cases filed just in 2010. So it's really exploded, and it basically, again, has everything to do with placing an expired patent or a patent that does not cover the product on a product and then facing exposure of up to $500 per such article if, and this is key, the action was done so for the purpose of deceiving the public. It's, uh, it, it's, it's really an incredible explosion. Not so long ago, there was sort of the birth of the non-practicing entity, the patent troll, if you will. This is a new breed of, of troll, to, to use the unkind term what are being called false marking trolls because now there's this entire class of bounty hunters who some of them are just suing under their own name, some of them find an individual to sue on behalf of, and some of them have set up LLCs to bring these lawsuits. But they're really all just set up to file suit and then to split the revenue from any settlement or proceeding 50-50 with the U.S. government. They're uh, brought by anyone who decides that... Uh, they want to act on behalf of the federal uh, federal government. Uh, key TAM plaintiffs need no individual standing. And uh, what happens is the uh, the key TAM plaintiff will file the lawsuit, uh, will call out the alleged false marking, and then the case will proceed. Once the parties 
this is and one interesting wrinkle is that once the parties reach a settlement, that settlement needs to be vetted with the government because the government is really the party with the real cause of action. And so what usually happens is the settlement is forwarded to the Department of Justice. They have some attorneys in their civil division that are now dealing with these cases. And those attorneys have an opportunity to review the terms of the settlement and to determine whether they're acceptable to the government. Because under race judicata, once the government has accepted money for a particular party's alleged false marking, no one else can bring that claim. The government's standing uh, to bring the claim has, has been exhausted. Their ability to assign the claim has been exhausted. And so no one can come along and bring another lawsuit for the same the same marking. So they get cleared by the government, and then uh, the case gets settled, or, of course, if there's a judgment. Obviously, the, the easiest thing to do is not to mark your product with any patents. The, the problem with that is that, you know, the Patent Act also uh, advises that if you don't mark your product with a patent, uh, you may not be able to seek damages for the period before the potential defendant knew about your product. Marking provides you constructive notice. So there's this upside to marking, but now there's this corollary downside. So assuming we're going to continue marking our products, what companies ought to do is start to, you know, just think about this. I mean, to put it candidly, uh, the question of expired patents in particular just really wasn't on anybody's radar before the Forest Group decision brought it back onto the radar. So companies need to work probably with their patent counsel to maybe set up some sort of protocol to keep track of when patents expire. Uh, another thing that companies should be keen on doing is getting uh, perhaps an opinion of, of their patent counsel before a product is actually marked, if there are any last-minute changes to the product and so forth, to make sure that the product is still covered by every patent that is marked on the product. It should be noted that marking can also happen via your website your advertising and the like. So any time that a product is referenced in connection with patents uh, can constitute marketing. It doesn't have to just be physically on the product. There are sort of a couple of things that lawyers should be thinking about going forward. One is in the bucket of their clients who haven't been sued yet. And with 500 lawsuits, a lot of our clients have been sued. But for those that haven't been sued yet, it's, it's establishing that protocol that we talked about because all of those steps are going to go toward showing that the client does not have an intent to deceive the public. That question, did you intend to deceive the public, being written right into the statute, it becomes the critical question. Plaintiffs can fairly easily show that a product, particularly with, say, an expired patent, that a product was marked with an expired patent. But merely showing that a product was marked with a patent and the patent had expired does not create the cause of action. The statute doesn't say, you shall not false mark. It says, you shall not false mark with the intent to see the public. So, for example, in the Seminole Solo Cup case that the Federal Circuit uh, handed down earlier this year around June, there the defendant, in fact, marked its lids with expired patents uh, and, in fact, knew that those patent numbers had expired but had gone to its patent counsel and explained that these cup lids were made with very expensive molds, up to $500,000 to replace each mold and basically asked patent counsel if it would be acceptable to phase those molds out as they wore out rather than spending millions of dollars to remove some patent numbers that had expired. 
patent counsel advised that they thought that was an acceptable approach, and the company essentially put a policy in place that was designed to phase out expired patents in an economical way without undue hardships. The uh, district court ruled and the Federal Circuit affirmed that that kind of a policy demonstrated a lack of an intent to deceive and overcame any presumption of an intent to deceive that comes from a party marking with an expired patent and knowing that the product is marked with the expired patent, which is a presumption set up by the Clone Tech case in earlier Federal Circuit opinion. So you've got this presumption set up, and you've got the presumption being overcome by demonstration of lack of intent to deceive there specifically, you know, a policy put in place with the, with the help of counsel. So the advice to those who have not yet been sued is to demonstrate that there is no intent to deceive, to put indicia in place of a lack of intent to deceive a program to periodically review, uh, perhaps an, an opinion of counsel as to marking, uh, will all be very valuable should a product nevertheless slip through the cracks that is marked with an expired patent. For those that have already been sued, the, the advice is, I think, again, to focus on that intent question. There have not been a lot of opinions yet that have dealt with the question of the intent and how much is enough and how much demonstration of a lack of an intent is enough to overcome any presumption created by the false marking. And so focusing on any evidence of a party's policies will be helpful. And, and short of that, focusing on the lack of a policy, uh, the lack of any intent to deceive, a simple lack of knowledge that this was even an issue for several of our smaller clients, they simply never even knew that this was an issue. They didn't even know that there was such a thing as false marking before this recent wave of cases. So a lot of them have just sort of been caught with, with their metaphorical pants down, but never intended to deceive anyone. I mean, the, the reality is the likelihood that a patent number on the side of a product would actually curb any competition is, frankly, relatively naive. Uh, if there was a competitor who actually intended to go into a particular business and wanted to know if their potential competitor's products were patented and wanted to know what the patents were, they would look at the product, look at the numbers, look them up on the PTO website, and certainly if those patents had expired, they would be able to find that out fairly quickly. So it's all sort of a legal fiction more than it is a reality, but nevertheless demonstrating in every way you can that there was no intent to deceive will be critical and I think the real next wave of cases are going to be the cases that deal with this question of how much is enough evidence of, of a lack of intent to deceive uh, and, and if I may throw in just one more uh, interesting issue this question of exposure the, the reality that this needs to be taken very seriously by clients the fact is you've got this statute that says up to $500 per article now, as, as interpreted by the uh, Forestry decision. That's been put into practice in some fairly extreme ways. In fact, in the Forest Group case itself that went back down, that was remanded back to district court, the district court there awarded the sort of highest retail price of each of the products as damages, which was $180 per article. Now, on the one hand, there was only a handful of articles, so that only amounted to $6,000. But the repercussions of that for all these cases that are out there are significant. We have a handful of damages decisions at best, and they are not looking like anyone has yet followed the Federal Circuit's advice in the Forest Group case that started all this, which was that 
even though it's up to $500, the court said, look, it may well be that there are cases in which a fraction of a penny will be more than sufficient. So the courts are, are given a great deal of latitude from a fraction of a penny per article up to $500. And what we haven't yet seen, the way we have in, say, copyright statutory damages, which is much more of a well-defined and, and longer-running area of jurisprudence, we haven't seen courts wrestling with what is an appropriate damage number if they do get to that level. So we are in a place now where there's tremendous potential exposure, not a whole lot of law on how that exposure is going to shake out. So definitely something that uh, we all need to be aware of and take very seriously. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.